Welcome back to the Jigsaw Podcast. This week on the School of Unlearning, we're looking at leadership principles in the book of Acts. Let's get started. Good morning. Sure. So, we, you know, we've been the last like three weeks, we've been talking about weather patterns yep. and we've been talking about fall and colors. And yep. then yep. we broke the record yep. for snowfall. Well, technically white is on the spectrum, all the colors. Oh, wow. So technically it's very colorful outside. You're continuing this, this. I'm trying. I'm sorry. It's That's sad. Good. Did you see that we broke the all-time record yes. for Eau Claire County? Yes. Like never in recorded history have we ever had this much snow in the month of October. That's awesome. It's that's a word. 2020. I love winter. I'm that guy. I like in to October? be October. Well, I'm I'm trying to put a happy face on things, mm. Shua. I'm trying to stay positive. <laughs> I um so I did. I took a wonderful walk with my dog in the woods yesterday. It was just magical and Narnia like. Um but October, middle of October is a long time, particularly if this sticks. And I think there might be some indication that this might stick. <laughs> it's so, a sign of the world's longest winter. <laughs> it could be. Uh, the ground's pretty cold, and it's not supposed to warm up that much, and so it could be a long winter. The Farmer's Almanac has said it's supposed to be a long winter. So Okay, Paul, lead us, lead us out of this yes? doldrum of a sad situation. Well, it's about leadership. There <laughs> it is. I mean, leadership is, is discovered uh, through difficult times, and so <laughs> 2020 is a time where good leadership is really shining and bad leadership is being exposed, right? And mm-hmm. so how do you lead during difficult times? And so this last weekend we did a, a message on um, two and four and to encourage anybody who's in charge of anything right now. Because it's a very difficult time to be in charge. And again, I, I think any year, snow in October would be kind of a, uh, I don't know if I'm ready for this whole winter. <laughs> but I think people's margins are already pretty thin right now. And yeah. so this is just one more thing to say, uh, this is just one more thing. It's also not surprising. Like it's like 2020. Of right, course, right. Of course it would snow right. in October. Yes. <laughs> we have a tent behind the church that oh, we've I used for multiple that. activities. <laughs> have you been behind the church? Well, it's not so, since the snow hit. Well, uh, look, <laughs> uh, you can't see it because <laughs> the window we're sitting by, you can't see it from here, but, um, it collapsed last night. Oh no. <laughs> and, uh, one of our guys, Gabe, was planning on having a little wedding ceremony in it in two weeks. So. Oh, no. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's that kind of year, right? <laughs> you know, if it can happen, it's going to happen. So wow. so now more than ever is the time for strong leadership, for good leadership, for calm leadership to emerge. And so um, this passage we looked at uh, this last weekend is a passage of scripture in the book of Acts. It'd be very easy to look past because it looks like they had this, just this little tiff in the church and they said, the disciples said, ah, it's not that big of a deal. We're not going to worry about it. Let's put these other people in charge. But it's actually a big, big deal. And uh, it was added to the book of Acts because this was actually a major threat to the church. It was a major threat to the church unity, to its mission, to whether or not it was really going to internalize the message and calling of Jesus to go to the ethnos, to go to the people groups, to go to the nations. So what happened was you had the Church of Jerusalem being born on the day of Pentecost. And it's hard for us to get our minds around this, but in the mindset of those very first believers, this is a Jewish movement. This is an extension of Moses and Abraham. Some of them probably would have looked at it through the lens of this is going to renew Israel, 
this is going to renew the Jewish faith. Um, but, but by and large, they would have thought that this is for and about Jewish people. Now, we may add some other people who are kind of on the fringe, but the expectation is going to be that they're going to be, you know, become more or less Jewish. And so the Messiah came for Israel, about Israel. Even the, the, the admonition of Jesus saying, go into all the world, there would have certainly been those who said, okay, we're going to go around the world, we're going to gather up the Jews who are all around the world. And so, so hmm. Jesus is constantly challenging our perspective of tribalism. He's constantly challenging our perspective of it's me and you, and I'm not sure about you. It's interesting to think. It just came to my mind of like because in the Old Testament, there's there's sure. verbiage about this too. Like the the nation of Israel is supposed to be a light unto the yep. nations. But what did they even think that meant? Not right. necessarily that right. people were going to become Jewish, maybe, but that they would be kind of this shining lamp post that people would look at and be like, oh, okay, wow, we're we're not them, right? <laughs> to right. A, to end up to a point. right. And it even used language like it's supposed to stir up jealousy in the other nations. Mm-hmm. That they would say, what do you have that we don't have? Now, the Jewish people cherry-picked the scriptures that they liked to really focus on. I'm glad we never do that. Oh, yeah. Yes. Christians have never, never been Never been a problem with that. No. But they would tend to look at those verses that would say, come out from among them and be separate, live differently, act differently, don't be polluted by their pagan and their idolatrous ways. And they would make that as kind of a, a rule of God's heart is for just us mm-hmm. and not for the nations. This is what makes... Old Testament books like Jonah, so very important, because Jonah was sent to a pagan or a non-Jewish nation, Mm -hmm. and if you read the book of Jonah closely, the reason he didn't want to go, the reason he fled and the whole, you mean, swallowed by a whale and all that kind of stuff, was because he he knew God. He said, I know you're gracious and slow to anger, abounding in love, and I knew you'd forgive these people, and I did not want you to forgive these people. Even the last part of the book of Jonah, where there is a vine growing and Jonah finds great comfort and shade in that vine. Well, that's a metaphor for Israel. The vine is the metaphor for Israel in the scripture. And his whole thing of, well, that withered. And now he was angry about the vine. And 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 God says, you know, um, you're angry about this thing, but should not I be concerned about all the other nations as well? And so God is forever trying to get his people to expand their perspective about who is supposed to Beloved. So in the book of Acts, we have the very first Christians being um, almost exclusively Jewish, Jewish people. And there's two primary groups. The first group are people who were Jewish and they grew up in the region around Jerusalem. So Judea, the Southern region, you know, Galilee. Um, And so they would have spent their life in a very Jewish immersive environment. The primary um, predominant group would have been Jewish. They would have grown up routinely going up to Jerusalem for feasts and festivals. They would have spoken the same language or dressed the same way. They would have been oppressed by Rome, but they still would have had this kind of Jewish identity. If they weren't in Jerusalem proper, they grew up in the synagogue, and, and so these are people who just were very Jewish. And well, what happened was um, earlier in Israel history, hundreds of years before, and actually multiple times, the Jewish people were conquered, they were scattered, and so there were Jewish people living all over the world. There were Jewish people as far as Babylon and Assyria and Rome and Egypt, and they kept their Jewish identity through the synagogue, which will be a very important concept later in the book of Acts, because Paul begins his ministry when he does missionary journeys by going to the synagogues. He starts first with the Jews and then, then goes to the Gentiles, and we'll say more about that at another time. But 
But what would happen is that these Jews who lived at faraway places, they would probably once in a lifetime make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they would come and they would probably stay through the whole season of feasts. And they would, they would, um, they would just live in Jerusalem. They would live, live there. But of course, having lived in another culture for hundreds of years, although they would have known the Moses and the law and they would have followed the general rules, they also would have been different. They would have been part of Greek culture. They might have dressed different. They might have spoken a different language. They would have been a lot more tolerant of Greek things just because and um, Hellenistic things are Greek things sometimes translated in the scriptures because they, they just grew up around uh, different people. So it'd be, you know, um, the difference between growing up in, you know, um, Eau Claire and New York. I mean, mm-hmm. people in New York are just much more open to diverse things because they're, they're, I mean, it's a, it's a much more of a melting pot. So what ends up happening is they all become believers. And then these people who came from other places don't want to leave because the church is in Jerusalem. So many of them stay in Jerusalem. So the church then begins to care for each other. They sell everything and they take care of each other. And within that, apparently some tensions arose between the Hebraic Jews, the, the Hebrews, they called themselves, were the Hebrews, and then the Hellenists, that these Greek Jews. Now, they're all Jewish, but um, there's just kind of, okay, you're here, and we're having to sell our stuff, and, you know, we're just not sure about how this all kind of thing. It's a very natural um, tribalism that comes... It's just everywhere in history. It's in every one of our hearts. Um, And so um, the temptation to take care of me and mine and then to see everybody else as a threat, as suspect or not as pure, that my way of looking at things is the proper way of looking at things. And if you can get that, that's great. But if you don't, well, we're going to struggle. What ends up happening is it comes to a head when the church is in this process of caring for widows. So the church historically has always cared for the most vulnerable. There's no one more vulnerable than a widow because they're women at a time when women are disenfranchised. If you don't have children or family, well, you just don't have options. And so the church started caring for widows and, um, and, and held this as the kind of highest form of spirituality, really. Well, what would happen is that the Hebrew um, widows would come and they would get a certain amount of food and they probably knew the people distributing the food and it was kind of like, yeah, I know you and you know, I know your family and that kind of thing. But when the Hellenists came, it says, it doesn't say they, they said they were being um, um, neglected. It says they were being neglected. So even the great church in Jerusalem had this kind of tribalism, this kind of separatism. All of this, of course, is the seed of things like, you know, racism. It's the seeds of division and clans and, and all the different things that separate. And so uh, a dispute arose, it says, about this. This complaint came, and again, we would say, well, this is not just a very big thing, but this is actually at the heart of what the church is going to be. Is the church going to deal with this? Is the church going to be honest about this? Is the church going to be the kind of church that, that, um, that takes this kind of thing seriously? And is the church going to be ever more inclusive? Because... This is actually a low bar to accept other Jews who grew up in a different culture. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that may seem like a big deal for them, but here in a couple chapters, we're going to see, okay, Samaritans are welcome to the table. And that's, that's the half-breed Jews that are especially despised by Hebraic Jews. And then later on, you're going to see, okay, well, now he's including, you know, um, someone who is a eunuch. So a eunuch would have been someone in the Old Testament law who would have been considered unclean. And so now people who are unclean are included. So, wow, what about that? And then you're going to have, okay, well, 
you know, women are now empowered within the church. And then you're going to have um, uh, Peter, we're going to see the story of Peter in a couple weeks, where he has to get his own vision to, mm-hmm. to get this, to understand this, that what God has made clean, don't call unclean. And that is not a passage about food, that is a passage about people. And so, because he, he then goes to the house of Cornelius, and even going inside of the house of Cornelius would have been something a Hebrew would have never done. And he then welcomes this family. He says, I now see that God's grace. I now see. <laughs> this is Peter. He's been with Jesus. I mean, day of Pentecost. I now begin to understand that this message is for everybody. So this this message of inclusion just continues. So, so this is an early threat. Mm-hmm. This is an early threat to the church that is deep, and then it is significant. And so I say too that yeah. I find a lot of comfort in the fact, you know, we can look at the Bible and we can see sometimes these people as heroes yep. and then we don't yep. think like we measure up to them. Nope. But I, I find a lot more comfort in seeing their failures <laughs> and seeing their struggles and just seeing that, wow, the early church, as much as we can like kind of put them on a pedestal, no. we, we, we talk about the early church, like, man, if only we could be them. Right. Well, they struggled in a very, very similar way to us and yep. it took years. years. And it, and these are people like you just mentioned, Peter, he walked with Jesus for three years. Yep. Like he knew him on such a close level. Um, and yet still we, we see this um, many years after Jesus ascends, still struggling, coming to terms, understanding that there's that example of Paul calling him out in the book of Galatians. Yeah, he, Peter still is going to struggle with And this. that's a long time after this. Right. So, yep. um, and I look at those stories, I'm like, okay, cool. All right, good. We can see that God's grace is still there for Peter in those moments. And God's grace is still there for me right now in my moments. Well, it, it is both comforting. And I hope on one level too disturbing in this, that, okay, if they can have fooled themselves about how enlightened they were, about how clear they had the message, what am I fooling myself about? How, sure. how is how is this tribalism still part of who I am? How am I still creating in my mind some kind of other? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it is both wonderfully comforting and also hopefully, like I say, convicting to say, okay, I'm supposed to take a look at, you know, who are the Samaritans in my world? Who are the the Gentiles in my world? Who are the people who I just, yeah, well, they're from there and they do this and you know, they're coming into our country or whatever it is. That's the same thing. And and that's not, and, and again, it's a comfort that it's not just unique to us. This is not a modern invention. This is as old as, you know, Cain and Abel. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this this division that Jesus and the kingdom of God is totally against. So so how are they going to handle it? So what you have, and, and what I, I love to do in this passage is just see leadership at work. I mean, you have um, so many leadership principles in this passage. And and like I said Sunday, if I can just say too, um, if you're a leader, this is a tough time to lead. And I think it's just important for us to acknowledge that. And that's true if you're in an ER or a classroom or a family or you're running a business or you're leading a nonprofit. This is a challenging time where character will be revealed. It'll be tested and lack of character will will you know will be the person who will um, will shrink back. Uh, Warren Buffett has a saying. Um, I'll, I'll paraphrase it poorly, but it, it's basically that when the tide is up, we're all in the surf. When the tide goes out, you find out who's not wearing a swimsuit, mm-hmm. and and that's just his. He, he applied that to business. That there's businesses that look like they're strong and robust, but when hard times come, that's when the thinning comes. That's when it it becomes a. Um, 
a different thing. And, and this is going to be a major struggle for the church. The church has, the first major church council is on this issue. It's the church council of Jerusalem, where they have to figure out how we're going to include the Gentiles. And even, uh, there's a, a verse we looked at, uh, it's in the passage we're reading uh, right about now, where it says, just this little statement, and many priests were converted. Many priests became followers of the way. So these are people who grew up knowing the law, teaching and establishing that this is Israel, separate, don't have anything to do with Jew, Gentiles. You just imagine how hard it was for them to start wrapping their minds around everything I grew up doing and believing and teaching now seems to be out the window. And we don't know if it was from this group, but but within the church then became this group called Judaizers, who basically said, nope, we don't agree with Peter, we don't agree with Paul. In fact, we are so certain they're wrong and these people within the church, we're going to follow them around, and we're going to persecute them. We're going to, we're going to say, say um, Jesus came to renew Israel, and now you're including these Gentiles, and so they stir up riots later. I mean, this is this is um, deep within, um, you know, the broken human heart. So what happens in this story is that it says the 12 summoned the full number of disciples, so they called everybody together. I love the fact that they got everybody involved, okay? Uh, Hebrews and Hellenists and everybody, and says it's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. And so that 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 statement has always it never felt wonderful on my ears because it always sounded to me like the disciples were saying we shouldn't be bothered with this. But what I actually think they're saying is, look, guys, Jesus gave us a specific commission. So we were with him for three years. He taught us stuff that no one else has ever been taught. We need to be teaching that and preaching that and praying. This is our primary thing. This is our main thing. And and one of the characteristics of a good leader is they don't try to do everything. They try to do the things that only they can do. And the other things are things they say, well, I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to let that be not done because that's not my main thing. Or I'm going to help other people emerge to do those things. And so what the disciples are saying is they're following a principle that's actually taught throughout the Bible, going all the way back to Moses, that we're going to we're going to delegate, we're going to empower we are going to address this problem in a very, very uh, real way. So they're not trying to minimize the problem or dismiss the problem. They're trying to find a an appropriate way to solve the problem without creating a new problem because now they're not doing the main thing that they're supposed to be doing. This is a huge leadership challenge, particularly if you're a Christian as a leader because Christians fall into the trap of, well, I want to be a servant, so I'm, I need to be willing to do what can seem like the lowliest thing, particularly if you're really concerned about image management, you're trying to look a certain way. So I'm going to be the person who does all the lowly tasks. Well, if your job or your calling, your commission or your charge with an organization is to do other things and you're spending your time doing things that other people should be doing, you you are not actually living up to your responsibilities to do your main thing and you're robbing other people of the joy of service and the thing that they were created to do. And so to get your head straight on this as a leader is very, very important. And to quit worrying about looking, you know, like the servant and actually being the servant in the task that God has given you to do, particularly if you're high up in an organization, because the higher up you get, the more there are things that only you can do, only you can do. And those are the things you must do so that the organization can be healthy. So you see that principle being played out in how the apostles respond. I love the fact that they didn't um, take the low road. The low road would have been to deny the problem. It would have been to blame someone else. Well, these Hellenists, they shouldn't even be here, you know, or it would have been to, you know, 
kick it to someone else and say, you know, we're going to just ignore it and hopefully someone else will take care of it. They could have done all the things, you know, they could have felt sorry for themselves, you know, um, oh man, we're being criticized. This isn't fair. You know, don't realize how hard we work. All of those are the kinds of low road kinds of things that they don't do. Um, but they come up with a plan and they empower the people. So they say, therefore, pick from among you uh, seven good men of good repute. So the whole idea is, is three characteristics. Well, you know, they basically do a job description or what we call around here a service covenant. They have to be people with a really good reputation. And, and this is particularly true in this case because the integrity of the church is at stake. So, um, you know, uh, there has been something where people have been disenfranchised. Vulnerable people have been disenfranchised. And so, you know, all oh, the church talks about this love and this inclusion, all this kind of stuff like that. But here is a case where they're not doing it. Well, so get some people who everybody's going to say, yeah, I trust that person, that person in life and how they live and how they treat their family and how they do their business. They have a good reputation, you know, people of integrity that are respected. And then it says full of the spirit. And so within the context of the church, these are people who are not just good in the marketplace. They're not just smart people in terms of how to get, you know, the bottom line. They're being led by God. They have the things of God as their mind, as their heart. And, and you're looking for a spiritual person. A lot of times and churches make this mistake. They'll hire a really talented person, but they won't ask deep questions about the person's character and about just their, their love for Jesus and their, their fidelity to the scriptures. And so, um, then you end up getting a person who actually, because they're talented, they do a lot and they get a lot of influence. But then when the pressure comes it just, it, it gets bad. So, so you want a spiritual person and then a person who has wisdom and, and wisdom in their understanding is not a lot of informational knowledge. It's the person who takes the truths of God, the principles of God and applies them to life successfully. That's wisdom. So what I've said in the past, I even said this last weekend is that for us, wisdom tends to be what we know for them. Wisdom is how they live. So the wise person is, wow, look at the way they treat their wife. That is a wise person. Look at the way they handle this sticky business deal. That is a wise person. A person whose life says, wow, that is, that is worth emulating. So, so they, they, they say, the disciples say, pick these people. Here are the characteristic. He says, whom we will appoint to this duty. He says, we will then give them the responsibility. And what we're going to see here in a minute is they not only give them responsibility, they give them the authority. And I think that's one of the big things that a leader's got to do is you've got to trust people, not just with the responsibility, but with the authority to make the decisions, make the calls. And even if they make a call different than you or handle it different than you, you let them do that. And we're going to see they're going to lay hands on them in a minute. And, and that's giving the responsibility and, and, um, and the authority. So again, just full of leadership principles here. He says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So we're going to get back to the thing that we were only we can do because of our unique time with Jesus and the church, the church is going to flourish because of this. And then in verse five, and, and it says what they said, please the whole gathering. And then the names of the people they chose, it's just, it's just, it's just so beautiful. One is Stephen. Um, and we're going to learn more about Stephen this week. He's going to, the first martyr and he is a person who starts serving here, but then he becomes a, a teacher and a leader within the church. Um, and, and, and specifically a man full of faith in the Holy spirit. And then these other names, um, uh, some of it's a little unclear, but a couple of them seem to be Hebrew names, 
but the majority of them actually seem to be Greek names. And so they, it seems to be that what they have done is they have empowered people who were good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, very wise people, but were from the Hellenistic group. So they were from the disenfranchised group. And that, that is just powerful. And that, that's one of the things that when you see it, you see it more in modern times, you really don't see it in ancient times, that it is a, it is a powerful thing for people with power to give power to people who were once oppressed. That is a powerful thing. And that's exactly what you're seeing here. In fact, one of them, the last name is Nicholas, is actually a proselyte um, of Antioch. So what that means is is that um, there was a synagogue in Antioch, and um, and this was actually very common. This is actually going to be, again, another major theme in the book of Acts to understand, or, or you just don't understand Acts, is that the synagogues in these Greek cities would actually attract Greek people. And what would happen is that Greek people would come in and they would hear about the teaching of Moses, they'd hear about monotheism, they'd see what the family were doing, they'd see how the, the, the Jewish community just would, would live by the teachings of God and the Proverbs, and they thrived. And so they would come and they'd be attracted, they'd hear the teaching of Moses, and then they would, they would want to start coming to the synagogue. And then they would do one of two things. One, they'd become a proselyte, so they would actually become a convert to, to Judaism. So they would get circumcised, they would... Um, you know, start eating kosher, they would take up the, the teaching of law and become part of the synagogue. So they'd convert. And that's what this guy is. So this was a guy who, again, was a former Greek. And that's why the scripture points it out. He says, they even got a, a proselyte a, a, a proselyte here, someone who was once Greek, now they're, they're Jew. So it's an, an inclusion of a person a little further out. So everybody can say, are they going to treat the Hellen, Hellenistic widows well? Well, these guys are. Mm-hmm. You know, because they're they're Hellenists, and and um, the other thing that would happen, by the way, is that some of these people who went to the Jewish synagogues they wouldn't convert because they didn't want to get circumcised, they didn't want to live kosher, and they didn't want to separate from their families. But they would come to the synagogue and they would sit in the back in a section, and it was called a section for the God fear. So these are people who feared God, but they had not converted, and so they would be in the synagogue, around the synagogue, but not really included in the synagogue life. And so what you're going to see is that when Paul went to many of the synagogues, the people who were in the synagogues didn't listen to him. In fact, some of them opposed him because the God-fearers would come and speak poorly about them. But the God-fearers in the back, the Greeks who were drawn to this, they listened. And so many of the, the churches that Paul started on his missionary journeys were, were God-fearers. They were Greeks who had already been drawn to Moses, who now become followers of Christ. because And that's why the Council of Jerusalem was so important, because the Council of Jerusalem said, Wow! All right, what are we going to do with these Greeks? Well, do they have to be baptized? Uh, they have to be um, circumcised? No. Do they have to follow all the laws? No. Um, um, so it removed the barriers to Jesus, and that's why the first century church, in the first part particularly, was primarily Jewish, and then that it quickly turns into a a, a Gentile church mm-hmm. um, because, um, interestingly enough, the Jews wouldn't let go of Moses and the law, and when you understand that. And then you start reading books like Romans and Hebrews and even the rest of Acts. All of a sudden, it's, oh, okay, that's why Paul chose that wording. That's what he's trying to say. That's why, you know, the book of Revelation talks about the synagogue of Satan, those ones who who would actually make an idol of the Old Testament law that would keep them from God. And again, there's, we could talk forever about how we still do those kinds of things. Anyway, it goes on to say in verse 5 that um, what they said pleased, and they chose these ones, um, and then they set them before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid hands on them. And so they gave them responsibility, but also authority. 
And this major threat to the church that could have blown it apart, could have just undermined it from the very beginning, was just handled beautifully uh, under the Spirit-guided leadership. And so, you know, for us, what are the leadership principles that we can see? Um, several things is, you know, deal with deal with problems open, honestly. You know, you got, I mean, there's 30 of them, right? There's the principles of of include the disenfranchised, empower the disenfranchised. Um, there's principles of, of give people responsibility, but also give them authority. There's principles about you deal with problems, but you still stay focused on your main things. I mean, it, it looks like choosing the leaders you, you know, defining the leaders you want, you know, you need good reputation, spirit filled, you know, um, um, and, and then, and even the way they handled how those were chosen, if you look closely, it says the apostle said, you choose seven people. And so this is actually kind of a, a democratically empowering expression of the church. And so, um, there's just all kinds of, of wisdom in the midst of all this, um, and, you know, we don't know the, the backstory. There may have been some of the people who get upset about this. So some of the people who maybe were in charge of the distribution of food weren't happy about this. You know, some of the Hebrew widows who got extra, maybe they weren't happy about the new fairness. But it's an opportunity to do things with such integrity that no one could say that's not fair because it's clearly fair. So there's just a ton of, like, really cool leadership stuff in here. Yeah. So, (laughs) that's really good. Yeah. I mean, um, again, it'd be an easy story to skip, but it, it, you know, one of, one of the principles in turning, looking at the scriptures is, is assume the people who wrote the, wrote the scriptures were intelligent and they added everything for a reason. So even that little thing, like talking about this was a a proselyte to, to, to to the faith, first to Judaism and then to Christianity, that's put there for a reason. They're trying to say something with that. And this little story is thrown in there. I mean, of all the things that happened in the first, you know, five to seven years of the early church, why did this story make it? Well, because it's central to the theme of the book. It's central to what real threats look like. And, and, um, and it's the first step of, one of the first steps of inclusion that now is going to be, you know, the rest of the book of Acts, you know? So, yeah, so... You know, I, I just want to encourage um, all the leaders out there. If you're um, in charge of something, and almost everybody is in charge of something, um, I just want to encourage you. You know, um, stay centered. So use the forty days of prayer. Be a person of prayer. Be in the scriptures. You know. Um, you know, if you're, you're struggling to say, okay, as a leader, where, where can I just get grounded? I would encourage you to do things like Proverbs, just reading the Proverbs. It's amazing how many times you just, you see perspective in Proverbs or, or the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. This is how Jesus looks at things. Um, even looking at the way Jesus led, which is a whole nother conversation, um, you know, find yourself centered and then just stay calm, you know, be in an anxious presence, um, take the high ground. The other thing is play the long game, you know, don't react every time something happens. So they say, well, I got to respond this way. So I look this way, or I got to respond this way so that these people are happy, do the right thing and then let the chips fall where they may. And you'll be amazed how often people will follow you, um, because they really respect you. They respect the things you're doing 
And so, I mean, um, hold the course. Um, understand you're not alone. Everybody's struggling right now. It's just a really complicated time to figure out how to lead. Um, it takes faith. It takes courage. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's a season for leadership. I wonder, Shu, if it might not be just a good idea. You know, we started our message this last week with um, the prayer of St. Francis. Mm-hmm. Maybe just end our time today. Sounds I could good. just lift up the prayer of St. Francis. So let's just do that. And, and let's, I just really want to pray for all of our leaders, whether you're leading in government or whether you're leading in, um, you know, school, education, medicine, business, whether you're leading in family or in a nonprofit, whether you're a teenager listening to this and you're captain of your sports team or you have influence with a group of friends, uh, let me let me just pray for you. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.